so blessed to see you all this morning. I miss you all. Yes, yes. and I was here last week for the uh, potluck, of course. Yeah, can't miss food. You're right, uh, Lenny. Uh, so if you don't know who I am, my name is Chris Figueroa. I'm a pastor at Calvary Chapel Old Bridge. And I was originally a pastor here. Uh, and um, I was saved in this church, so you know, and I became a pastor in this church. So um, through Pastor Frank's ministry, it's been such a blessing. I want to thank him uh, personally and, and publicly that you know, he's allowed me to come share the word with you today. Um, so, let's start off in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, we come to you humbly yet boldly through your throne of grace that you edify our souls through your word today, your inspired word that is of the ultimate authority here on earth, that is breathed out by you. It's profitable for training and equipping to help glorify your name. I say your word is spoken today and that we are just ready to do the work that you've called us to do. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. All right. I know we're doing some religious gymnastics, but would you stand up, please? <laughs> so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. The title of today's message is Get Ready to Train, Inspiration to Righteousness. Our primary text today is going to be uh, verses 16 and 17. We're going to start in verse 10, though, as we go through the Word. Word of God says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch in Iconium and at Lystra, that persecutions I endure, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. So he, right now what Paul's writing to Timothy, he's saying you have followed my ministry. You see a direct correlation to discipleship. The word disciple means disciplined learner. So he is a disciplined learner, Timothy, to the Apostle Paul. He says, you have followed me in all these things. And it says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Do we not see that today? But you must continue in the things which I have learned, but you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You may be seated. Amen. So, this is what we just read. <laughs> right? So, Paul's encouraging Timothy right now. Usually in Pauline literature, and the, the epistles that Paul writes, he tends to be, here's a doctrine, here's what you're doing wrong, this is what you need to do to fix it. Just read Corinthians. You'll be fine. But here he's encouraging him. This is his last letter written. Because the training he has received and the scriptures he had learned has been taught through childhood. Paul uses this passage to counterweight the description of the ways of the opponents in uh, verses 1 through 9 in the same chapter. Contrasting the ways of a servant of God and the ways of those who oppose the true faith. There were heretics back then, and there's heretics today. There's people mishandling Scripture then, and they're mishandling Scripture today. This is something that we need to understand. We need to know what's called proper doctrine. The word doctrine is a bad word nowadays. The word doctrine, all it means is teachings. We need to understand doctrine in order for us to live a life 
worthy of repentance, worthy of the gospel. That's how it's transformative. So as we go to our first point, you have the word is inspired. Now, there may be some people here today that are maybe skeptical of the word of God. It was written by men. And I know Pastor Frank gave a good um, apologetic, a defense. He used the prophetic argument. And last week he did a wonderful job. And here we're going to go through a textual criticism. So these are works for, from antiquity, okay? Now, if you notice, we're going to cover Homer's Iliad specifically. Homer's Iliad was written around 750 B.C., earliest copy. That's supposed to be A.D., not B.D. I had a friend say, you know that you do your own PowerPoints when you have mistakes. <laughs> so Homer's Iliad was uh, 340 A.D. was earliest copy. Now, the Iliad is the epic poem in 24 books traditionally attributed to the ancient Greek poet Homer. It takes uh, the Trojan War as it is su the subject, and though the Greek warrior Achilles is its primary focus, now if you notice with textual criticism, the more manuscripts that support, the better the integrity. So, you have a time span of 410 years. The number of copies, 1,757. Now let's go to the New Testament was written between 50 and 95 A.D. The last book written was by the Apostle John. It was the book of Revelation. Earliest copy, 125. Has a 99% accuracy. You have a time span of only 30 years. It is 25,000 manuscripts. 25,000. 5,700 5, are just in Greek. If we can't trust the transmission of the Bible, then we cannot trust any other book that has come from antiquity. There's archaeological evidence. There's prophetic evidence. Textual criticism. So you, you could do what's called evidential apologetics, historical apologetics, classical apologetics. You can do, work in all these different aspects. Because the Word of God constantly is proving to be true. You know, that's how science is catching up to the Bible. Well, so is history. They're finally figuring out that the Bible is the Word of God. All right, so now we're going to jump into our text. And we're going to go through verse 14 to 16. But you must continue in all things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. All Scripture. How much Scripture? All Scripture. So what does that mean? See, Paul's mainly referring to the Old Testament because the Old Testament was closed at this point. The entirety of the New Testament has not been written yet. Although it is authoritative. So most of the New Testament, like for example in 2 Timothy, was written around 65 AD. And that was before the destruction of the uh, temple in Jerusalem, which was 70 AD. So all the New Testament has... Uh, been written except for John's writing. And John's writings were between 85 to 95. So you have the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the epistles. And then you have the book of Revelation, which is the last book once again written. So the entirety of the New Testament was written within the first century. More textual criticism for you. But if you look at Peter... In 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, as writing to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of the, these things, in which are some things hard to understand, 
which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. People are going to false doctrine. But here it seems though the, um, the Apostle Peter is attributing the same authority to the status of Paul's writings. Notice the rest of scriptures. So we can be assured that all 66 books of the Bible are what we call canon. They're authoritative. They are God-breathed. Which is our next slide, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's what our New King James Version. Now, it's not wrong. It's a doctrinal statement. The word transliterated, the, the literal translation here is God-breathed. So notice it says it's God-breathed, which is a doctrine. We're going to go through the inspiration of Scripture. And it's profitable for what? Doctrine. Teachings. We need to have a right understanding of teachings. And it also means that this is where the origin of Scripture is. It, it comes from God himself, not from man. We mess it up. He gets it right 100% of the time. And it also points out to the fact that this God-breathed Scripture also imputes his character onto the Scripture. So his character is imputed onto the Scriptures. So we have all Scripture is by is uh, God-breathed. So remember that. Our origin, and if we're reading the Word of God, we're looking at everything He has written down and that He has revealed to us. And we know it's consistently true. Second Peter 1, 20, uh, to 20, uh, 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There is no private interpretation of the Bible. If you notice the Bible, it was written in the common vernacular. The New Testament was transmitted in Koine Greek. That is the common Greek. You notice that we have English translations, right? English translations are important because then we could read the scriptures. You don't need to know Latin. Now the word, the Latin Vulgate, we get the word vulgar from that. So it was a common Latin. So when we have a common English and common vernacular, people are able to understand because vernacular changes, doesn't it? Words are consistently changing meaning, especially nowadays. A little bit more than ever before, I would say. <laughs> We're not going to get into that conversation. <laughs> We're going to stick to the word today, right? Um, it does not come from a human ability. It comes from God. See, the prophets didn't just make up their own solutions to try to explain the mysteries of life. But God spoke through the prophets. He alone is responsible for... the the entirety of Scripture. This is why Christians need to study their Bible diligently. It's God's holy word. So now, so God breathed. That's the doctrine of inspiration. That's what the doctrine is. So inspiration is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit who moves upon us specifically chosen individuals so that they may receive divine truth from him and communicate that truth is written from the Bible. Now, here's how it goes in, in order. You have revelation, inspiration, authority, illumination, infallibility, and inerrancy. So here's what revelation is. Scripture is the conviction that God has chosen to disclose that's, that's it. It's God choosing to disclose. So there's two types of revelation. You have what's called natural revelation and special revelation. We're specifically talking about special revelation. That's the 
Holy Scriptures. Natural revelation is when we, when we look at, let's say, the natural world. And we see that there's an intelligent design, so there must be an intelligent what? Designer. Very simple, right? Like there's a moral law, so therefore there must be a moral law giver. So there must be an author, and he is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the creation of all things. So now we have inspiration. So you have revelation, then you have inspiration. Revelation has to precede inspiration. Here's why. Because inspiration is the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, but uh, through human writers. And the human writers, so guess what? They're not robots. The text, the Bible, was written in three separate languages. It was in Hebrew, very tiny little bit of Aramaic, very tiny. It was in Ezekiel and some in Daniel. The reason why they had to do it in, in Aramaic is because during the exilic period, when Daniel was taken over to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, their primary language was Akkadian over there, but the trade language was Aramaic. That's why you have the translation of the Old Testament called the Targums, which is the Aramaic Old Testament. That's the translation. So that's why some of it was written in Aramaic. Very, very, you know, tiny, tiny bit. And then the New Testament written in Greek. So the writers of scriptures were not robots. It's not like, you know... God said, write this, and everything's written the same way because there's different genres, right? You have the Gospels, you have poetry, you have historical books. All these co uh, come together as part of inspiration. God used the educational and gifts uh, of, of the writers to produce Scripture. That's the crazy part. He didn't just say, hey, you're going to write this and this only, and everything's going to sound the same. Every writer, if you notice... They're slightly different. Look at the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They have different themes even. There's all these different literary uh, um, understandings and everyone's unique in their own right and how they wrote the scriptures. And you can't take the same approach to every piece of scripture. For example, if it's poetry, you're not going to take it very literal, are you? <laughs> Sometimes when... When, when David's praying in precatory prayers, when he's talking about breaking people's teeth, that he wants God to break people's teeth, he's not literally saying break their teeth. He, <laughs> he wanted them to be punished, right? Some people take things ultra-literally, right? We don't want to do that. Now, authority. Authority has, um, the inspiration has divine authority of God, so the scripture is binding upon the mind and of the hearts. Scripture is above all men. It's above all creeds. It's above the church itself. All of them are subjected to Scripture. Now the word creed, credo, I believe. That's what it means. The Apostles' Creed is the Chalcedonian Creed, the Nicene Creed. Guess what? I agree with them. Good doctrine. But the creeds were still written by men. Right? Although they're really good doctrine, they're still written by men. Now the authority also comes from Scripture, and that's where our doctrine should derive from. Now illumination. This is the work of the Holy Spirit uh, who enlightens the minds of men who read the Scriptures. So inspiration is given to the writers. Illumination is given to the readers. That we're illuminated through the Holy Spirit as we read the, the scriptures. And infallibility and inerrancy. So these terms are synonymous. And they speak of unfailing certainty. They are true in all matters of doctrine and necessary for salvation. How do you know you're saved? Or how do you know how to be saved? Well, it says it in the scriptures. John 3.16. Ephesians 2.8.9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. See, that was unison. That was awesome. 
All right. So now we have the successive understanding of how Scripture was brought into play and what it does, because it goes from the revelation to the prophet to the, the papyrus or the, or the piece of paper that they wrote it on. It showed divine authority, and then it illuminated the readers, and then we could be assured of its infallibility and inerrancy. So now number two. The word is instrumental. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. See, Paul's words here remind Timothy that because scripture is inspired and infallible, it is also profitable. The Bible is not a collection of stories or fables or myths or mere human ideas about God. I like to call the Bible a library. And we call it a book, right? You're like, oh, it's, it's a book, right? No? Well, let's, let's see. We have different genres. That would, in, in, you know, talk about a library. Libraries have different genres of books. You have different books. You have letters. It's a literary work, you can call it. But it's not just a book. It's a library. It's the beginning of your library. It's the foundation of your library. It's not a human book. Through the Holy Spirit, God revealed his person and his plan to claim believers, to claim dead and make them alive, that his son may die on a cross for our sins as a ransom for many. He revealed himself through the scriptures. It transforms us from the inside out. It hits our deepest needs. People need God's word more than man's observation and practical suggestions. Now there is a time for suggestions on stuff. There is. Practical things. If you want to learn how to, you know, change the battery in your car, are you sure it's not in there? <laughs> we can be okay with that it's alright but there are practical things But so we have to determine what is good stuff and what is God's stuff good stuff and God's stuff see the good stuff helps us you know practically you know how to cook how to clean whatever it is and how to do your job and, but God's stuff it's the thing that changes who we are it changes us from the inside out once again. And he, that's why if we read the word of God and, it, 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 and we memorize scripture, we understand doctrines through all this, this is going to help us live our lives worthy of repentance, to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So we move on to the third point. The word is instructive. Doctrine, reproof, correction for instruction in righteousness. So, our first sub point here is concept. This is the doctrine point. Doctrine of teaching truth, which must flow from a consistent and authoritative area. And we must look at what's called the meta narrative. So, if scripture is the ultimate source of authority, right? We have to look at meta narrative, big picture, grand picture. So, if let's say something is being taught and it doesn't fit into the entirety of Scripture, square peg, round hole, doesn't work, right? Well, that's what happens with a lot of heresy. It's square peg, round hole. Everything has to be connected. All Scripture is connected. By the way, all of our doctrines. Do you know where they come from? Which books? The first five books of Moses. That's where all the derived from. And every other book after that, guess what? They refer to the Torah. So, all scripture, once again, is God-breathed. It's profitable for doctrine. 
but we must be able to look at the doctrine and how we're interpreting it and fit it with the big picture, like a big puzzle. If it don't fit, mm -mm, get rid of it. Here's a good understanding or uh, something to help you with your interpretation of Scripture. If the first sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, or else you will end up with nonsense. Yes! You will end up with nonsense. I'm going to show you the 16 essential doctrines in a minute of Scripture, and we're going to go through individually. No, I'm joking. We're not going to spend that time. It literally took, well, it literally took me to, you know, someone else to 16 weeks to go through it. <laughs> and there were like hour and a half sessions each. So, just one more quick thing. By calling in the Bible God breathed, Paul was identifying its divine source by making the source of doctrine. He was reminding Timothy of its authority doctrine that contradicted the Bible is to be rejected. Rejected. Corrected. And replaced with accurate teaching. So here are your 16 essential doctrines of the faith. You don't have to write them all down. <laughs> and I'll, tell you, I'll even tell you where I got it to. Uh, <laughs> this is um, Norman Geisler's um, essential doctrines, and I've agreed with every single one of them, so that's where I got it. And I've taught through this, too. That if, And we're going to kind of briefly go through them. Like the first one, God's unity. Oh, hero Israel, our God is one, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Well... Because look at the first two, because you have God's triunity, right? You have the Trinity, not tritheism, not three gods, because it would contradict the first one. <laughs> we believe in one God in three persons. And guess what? Just within the Torah, you can find all three. Okay? Now, just speaking about the Trinity, there's certain heresies that have come out. It's called modalism. Um... By the way, all 16 of these are generic throughout various denominations. You can be Reformed, you agree with this. Pentecostals, certain Pentecostals will disagree with the triunity part, but we don't believe in what's called modalism. God's in different modes. He's either the Father, he's either the Son, or he's either the Holy Spirit. No, he's all three at the same time. So, Modalism, so they'll use an analogy. It's called the water analogy, right? H2O. It's either steam, water, or ice. Well, are all the particles always all three at the same time? No, it's not. So that's where it starts to, you have, you have a problem there. It's called, so modalism. We want to avoid modalism. Um, and there's a couple of them, uh, partialism and Partialism, it uses the egg analogy. The egg analogy is if, you know, you have the shell, the yolk, and the, the egg white. The problem is if you take one out, it does not all together anymore. There aren't really good analogies for the um, doctrine of the Trinity. However, there are better analogies. A triangle is a really good one because you have three sides. They're not, all the sides are different, but they're still part of one triangle. It's a better analogy. Uh, one cube. One times one times one equals what? One. You guys forgot a math? What happened? <laughs> so, uh, or a rod. You have the rod, like you have the middle part that you grab onto, and you have the two ends. They're all three different parts, yet all one. So those are better analogies. Um, yeah, try, try to stay away from analogies, though, from the Trinity, because it never does it justice. It just never does. And how do you understand the Trinity? Well, that's God. There's nothing on earth that we can understand that can c correlate with God's holy Trinity. And you're like, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, Chris. <laughs> well, I have, I have a little secret, ready? The word Bible's not in the Bible either. Right? <laughs> they have Godhead, right? And so remember, it's a doctrine. It's a doctrine. All right, human depravity. We're totally depraved in our sins. Absolutely. We're depraved, and we can only be saved through God's grace, through our faith. Christ's virgin birth, huge one. If there's no virgin birth, then you get rid of what's called the hypostatic union. It's 
He is fully man and fully God. That goes away. Christ's sinlessness. If you take away his sinlessness, no penal substitutionary atonement. He died on the cross for nothing. See how you start taking away these various doctrines? And everything starts to crumble. Christ's deity and his humanity. Christ's deity, uh, one of the first ones to oppose Christ's deity was Arius. Arianism. Modern day Jehovah's Witness. So, during the Council of Nicaea, this is what they were refuting. They were looking, they were trying to prove, not Arius, you know, the other guys, were trying to prove the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a legend, it's a legend, that Nicholas of Assisi, St. Nick, Santa Claus, it was weird because he was olive toned and thin, but hey, whatever. <laughs> actually slapped him or punched him in the face, Arius. <laughs> That's the legend, because they took doctrine so seriously. They were so offended that he denied the deity of Jesus Christ, and if you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, then you deny the virgin birth, then you deny penal substitutionary atonement. So guess what? You're not saved. That's a problem, isn't it? Christ's humanity, once again, goes back to the virgin birth. Deny that, and then you don't have what? Penal substitutionary, uh, substitutionary atonement. Who died? How did he die? Can God die? Now you have a now you have conundrum. He had to be fully man and fully God. And if there's another one called Eutychianism, Eutychianism says he is half man, half God. My question to the people who believe that is: He half as tall as man, half as wide as man? Does he have as much as a man? Does he have a half of mind of a man? Now, on the divinity side, is he half omniscient, half all-knowing, half omnipotent, half all-powerful, half all-present? It's a logical fallacy. You're either a man or you're not. You're human or you're not. You're either God or you're not. <laughs> you can't be half omniscient, all-knowing. It just doesn't make any sense. So that, once again, doctrine comes into play. Big picture, right? So you have the necessity of God's grace. Here's what grace is. Let's say you work 40 hours a week, right? And you're looking for a paycheck, right? Because your boss, you know, you have an agreement. I work this many hours, right? I get this much money. Well, that's called works. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Means that you did nothing to earn your salvation, So it's a necessity for God's grace, necessity for our faith. We kind of just talked about that, that we need to have faith in who Jesus is. You can't say Jesus is a good teacher and say, oh, yeah, I'm saved. When Thomas, I, I think Thomas dropped, dropped to his knees after Jesus' resurrection. I really think he would have. Because that was a typical thing in the ancient Near East when you worshipped your God. You prostrated yourself. You fell. I was in the Marines, and they used to say this thing, drop like a rock. Well, I think he dropped like a rock. And he says, my Lord and my God. So there's a necessity of faith in who Jesus is. His atoning death. If we have no atoning death, now there's people say that. Uh, there's one theory that says, well, you know, the Father didn't have to send the Son to die on a cross for our sins. It's interesting because in Genesis chapter 3, when the fall of man happened, you have... God providing the first sacrifice. And for the life is in the blood. You have Leviticus that talks about all these Levitical sacrificial systems, right? All these sacrifices. And now you say, now people are saying, well, God didn't need to do that. He provided the first sacrifice, and guess what? The last sacrifice. So without his atoning death, we have no salvation. We have no communion with God. We have no peace with God. His bodily resurrection. If you take away the resurrection, by the way, 500 witnesses. Just saying, just 500 witnesses. Two people cannot have the same, um, hip, what was it? Hallucination, yes. 
Sorry, couldn't think of the word for a minute. <laughs> Two people could have the same hallucination. Now you have 500 that see the same thing. After he was crucified. His bodily ascension. Without his ascension, we have no what? Helper, the Holy Spirit. Exactly, the paraclete. His intercession. He is the high priest. He's constantly interceding for us. His second coming. Whether you're post-millennialist, amillennialist, or premillennialist. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. <laughs> We're not going to go through all of them. Obviously, here, myself, Pastor Frank, Pastor Sam, we all agree that we're premillennialists. Uh, we believe in a, a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. But every single one, whatever camp they're in, they believe in a second coming. Okay? The inspiration of Scripture. We just spoke about that, right? So the inspiration of Scripture. If you deny that this is not true, then why follow it? What's the point? Well, I have Google, you know, because Google's never wrong. How many of you self-diagnose yourself? All of a sudden, it's like some, you know, you have Ebola or something. <laughs> now, method of interpretation, very important. Because without this, all the other ones have a problem because you're not interpreting correctly. So you have to take a literal interpretation of Scripture. It says what it means. Like, you know, in Genesis 1, when they're talking about a day, Means a day, twenty-four hour day. The word yom means day. And this is important because this is where you get all the wacky stuff and people over spiritualize various scriptures. This is so when we interpret scripture and we're reading it, and if it if the first sense makes good sense, leave it alone. Because usually that's what it means. When we try to over-mystify things, that's when we get in trouble. That's where you get all the heresies that come around. You start imputing their own presuppositions into the scriptures. That's called eisegesis. Yeah, you're imparting your thoughts into the scripture, rather extracting, which is exegesis. And then my favorite is narcissus, when you put yourself inside the scriptures all the time. Because, you, you know, you're, you're in Ephesus, right? No, Paul's writing to Timothy. <laughs> not you. The Bible is written for us, not to us. You're not a um, 4th century Jew? No, not of us. B.C. I'm talking about. You're not from Colossae? Thessalonica? No. <laughs> it was written for us, not to us. All right, so now we have confrontation. So this is the reproof or rebuke. So reproof or rebuke, that's what it really means. And the goal here is to rebuke those in sin. If someone rebukes you, let me explain something. They love you. If you don't rebuke, you're also in sin. Yes. See, the initial impact of true doctrine involves the confrontation of false teaching and understanding. See, the offensiveness of some who teach biblical truth may have to be excused. It's called church discipline. But the effectiveness of biblical truth to error and evil requires no apology. There is no apology. We preach the scriptures without what? Apology. Now, the purpose of church discipline is to have someone to be restored and reconciled and brought back. But ultimately, when you rebuke, you do it in love, you do it gently, you do it through the scriptures, you better know your stuff. It better not just be a difference of opinion. Like how people argue for the last hundreds of years about Calvinism versus Arminianism. I don't, I don't care that much. <laughs> I don't. I've realized that they have, they have arguments on both sides. I have my own personal view. Um, but people try to argue over those things. And that, that's not what this is about. I'm talking about if you deny the Trinity, there's a problem. If you deny the unity of, of God, yeah, I got a problem. Penal substitutionary atonement, now we really got a problem. 
those are the things, those are essential. You know, whether you, know, you believe in the elect or saved versus, you know, free will, that's, that's not a salvific issue, really. Now, correction. Our goal is to help people straighten out errors. In the area of correction, the scriptures have two roles. So the first role is this. They provide a complete presentation of the teaching where only part of the truth has been present. Two, they provide uh, for the right understanding and application where true doctrine may have been taught but has not taken effect. So you must have a proper interpretation to have a proper application. Understand this. There's one interpretation. Uno. For the Filipinos, Isa. There's one interpretation. There are many applications. So, if there's two interpretations, that means Scripture's what? Contradicting itself. And Scripture doesn't contradict itself. So, it's profitable for rebuke and correction. Where our goal is to help people be correct in understanding the Scriptures. Coaching. This is instruction or training in righteousness. It's showing people how to please and glorify God. Not to impart your own personal pet doctrines on people. There's some churches, if you don't wear a suit to church, you ain't saved. What? Hold on a second. How many suits did Jesus wear? How about Paul? He was in chains. Yeah. They didn't. So, just a little side note about legalism. There's three parts of legalism. You just heard one, imposing someone, your pet doctrine on someone. But doing something to attain salvation, doing something to maintain salvation, and then doing something or imparting your own personal pet doctrine on someone to include salvation. That's legalism. When someone says that you need to live a holy life, that's not legalism. Someone says you need to read your Bible, it's not legalism. Someone who says you need to pray, not legalism. See, the ideal setting for doctrine includes the kind of preparation that minimizes the need for later rebuke or correction. You're in training, you're in sanctification. See, we're not talking about justification. You're saved by faith and faith alone, by His grace alone. This is sanctification. I mean, the word means set apart. It means that you are in a training process to be more like Christ. And our goal is to what? Glorify God. See, the nature of Scripture allows us to teach it confidently to our children and to learn it for ourselves. Where should the kids be learning the Bible? At home. We should just give them tests every week here. No. No, I'm just joking. Don't do that. <laughs> but it's at home. Parents are supposed to be teaching children. And by the way, when you start teaching more, you start learning a lot faster. Now we go to our fourth point. The word is implemented. Implemented. In verse 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word that, it's like in order that. This is the ultimate purpose of the God-breathed scripture. That the man of God may be complete or adequate or competent this is referring to all Christians, by the way. Right here is referring to all Christians. The word in Greek is anthropos. Man, mankind. So anthropology is a study of man. Not just men, you know, but men, women, all believers. So believers should not read and study God's word for mere knowledge or prepare for even arguments. They should study the Bible so that they will know how to do Christ's work in the world. 
See, knowledge of God's word is not useful unless it strengthens our faith and leads us to do his will, not our will. Every single believer is responsible for this. To prepare yourselves for any and every ministry God may have for you. To be adequate and equipped, we must be involved in personal Bible study, maintain quality prayer life, and participate regularly in private or corporate worship. We are not to forsake the gathering, as it says in Hebrews. But our goal is to glorify God. So you're constantly in a training process. Justification takes no work. It's faith. Saved. Yes. Sanctification? Got a lot of work to do. It takes time. It's, it's, it's hard because you gotta read you're reading the scriptures and you're learning. You're in the process of learning. You're constantly and you the word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's the rebuke part in Hebrews chapter four, verse twelve. It's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, like bone and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So you want to know what's wrong with you, or why you're sinning, or if there's something wrong with you, which we all, because we're depraved in our sins. Read the Bible. And you should be convicted, virtually every time you read. Notice it doesn't say encouragement there. It doesn't say encouragement. All of the scripture may encourage you, that's not the main purpose. It's to equip you so that you may be complete. By the way, the word complete here is the only time that Greek word is actually used in the scriptures. Interesting. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Five big questions of life, origin, identity, meaning, morality, destiny. Meaning, why are you here? What's your purpose? His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Doesn't mean you can work your way to salvation or maintain your salvation. We're here to do his will and his work. We have to be about our father's what? Business. which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as we move to our application, apply now because now you apply. Inspiration and application. Inspiration and application. As we look back at that verse in verse 16... I'm going to read it one more time. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Scripture is basic for application after it's been properly interpreted. Disclaimer. <laughs> for how we ought to live. We can approach each passage with the assumption that it accomplishes one or more of the four purposes. First purpose, once again, doctrine. What basic truth that God wants me to know does this passage teach? Reproof. What error in judgment, understanding, or behavior might this passage be reproving in my life? Correction. How might this passage correct, balance, or direct me? And instruction, what does this passage present to prepare me for some future spiritual challenge? Oftentimes in ministry, in any type of church ministry, when someone's you know, appointed to or called to be a deacon or an elder or pastor, they're usually doing the work prior, which there was preparation even before that. So you're always preparing for something. I don't know what that is. It's between you and the Lord. 
but I would use um, George Mueller's example when someone came up to him, say, hey, George, what do you need? He says, go back in your prayer closet and the Lord will tell you what I need. Well, go back in your prayer closet and God will tell you what you're being prepared for. <laughs> He'll reveal those things to you. All right, now the, my last question. I like to ask questions at the end. Are you equipped? The whole Bible is God-breathed because it is inspired and trustworthy. We should read it and apply it to our lives. The Bible is our standard for testing everything else that claims to be true. We live in a world of relativism. Truth is whatever you want it to be. Okay. I wonder how that works when you go to pay for a meal or something, or pay your bills. <laughs> it's not a hundred bucks, it's a dollar. No, no, that's what it means, right? Because math is, you know, becoming subjective. Two plus two is I guess, not going to be four anymore. How that works. <laughs> I'm telling you, I would like, the way you pay for something, the way you get your paycheck, I guess my first thought, I'm like, how is that going to happen? We are created by an absolute God with absolute morals, with an absolute... Um, library that has been inspired by him. We need to understand that because the world's like that, we're not like that. We have to be different than the world. That's why doctrine is so very important and we have to go through the scriptures. I challenge you as you go through the scriptures, look for doctrine. Things you teach. Here's a hint though. When it's just narrative, when it's just a story, usually just leave it alone. Because that, you don't find a lot of doctrine in narrative. But, for example, in the epistles, you find a ton of doctrine. And this is where people get some crazy ideas about, you know, other things. But See, the Bible is our safeguard against false teaching and our source of guidance for how we should live. It is our only source of knowledge about how we can be saved. God wants to show you what is true and equip you to live for him. The key, read it consistently. Read it consistently. I don't care if you read 30 chapters a day or one chapter a day. Read it consistently. Develop a plan to re uh, read your whole Bible and not just the familiar or convenient parts because there's a lot of hard things in the Bible. Don't skip over them. Read all of it. Because he wrote it for you. All right, so now we're going to move on to communion. Stand with me. Two thousand years ago, Jesus sat with his disciples in the upper room, the Last Supper. And that was the last time they were going to spend a meal together before he was crucified, scourged, beaten, the crown of thorns put on his head for our sins. And this is us communing with him on a consistent basis. So he took the bread and he broke it. 
He said, this is my body. And his body was broken on Calvary for, once again, us. A price that we can never pay. A price that only God himself. And we love Jesus for this. Without him, we have no hope. He is our assurance. He is our salvation. And he is our truth. This we partake. covenant Leviticus says the life is in the blood and without his sacrifice blood being spilt there would be no forgiveness of sins Jesus gave us everything and we must give him everything and that let us partake Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Lord, for your holy word. A wonderful explanation of so much of the truth of the word. I hope you're taking notes. Are you taking notes? If not, go watch it again. Take some notes. As pastor, <clears throat> pastors taught us, you know, when we write things down, we remember like twice as much. <laughs> so it's really important for us to learn and continue to learn the scriptures. So the altars are open if you'd like to come up and pray on your own or with somebody. We have elders here and others that will pray with you.
understand your inspired words that you speak to our hearts and our minds that we may understand the true teachings of what you have established through your prophets and apostles Lord God that we are able to live a life worthy of repentance worthy of the gospel that we are mighty ambassadors and equipped for every good work because you are holy and you command us to live as we are holy too in the precious name of Jesus amen, amen.